Regular listeners will know that my favourite property report is CoreLogic's quarterly pain and gain report. Every quarter, we're reminded that property investing is a risky game because every quarter, a significant proportion of Australian vendors sell and crystallise a loss. And when we dig into the numbers, we can see evidence of what the most risky types of property are and the most risky locations. And in the most recent report, there's a special section on short-term sales from which we can gain an understanding of sales driven by higher interest rates and see changes in regional markets. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Today, we're joined by CoreLogic's Head of Residential Research, Eliza Rowan, who is the author of the Pain and Gain Report. And for those of you who don't know Eliza, she's an extremely respected property analyst who commands respect amongst peers who, dare I say it, are significantly older. She specialises in descriptive and inferential data analysis, data visualisation and framing data trends with broader economic concepts. In particular, she is gifted in clearly explaining complex property concepts. Great to see you again, Eliza. It's not so much, it's not so long since last time we saw you, but we really appreciate you coming along. You've added a new section in this report that focuses on two-year turnarounds. That's very tight. Tell me, has the number of resales within the two-year period shown a marked increase? Hey, thanks for having me again. Um, Yeah, we have seen an increase in both the portion and the underlying number of sales that have occurred where the property was held for two years or less. Um, So that portion has risen from a recent low of about 6% at the end of 2021 uh, to 8.5% as of the June quarter of this year. And a key part of that as well has been looking at the portion of loss within that because short-term resales aren't unheard of. They can actually be really good for a seller if they've made a strong capital gain and they want to release that capital, maybe even to put towards buying a better property. Um, But assessing the level of loss making within that gives us a better sense of do people actually want to sell or maybe in the context of rising interest rates, they're finding that they might not have a choice. So the portion of loss-making sales for that two-year hold period has gone up to 9.7% in the June quarter, and that's up from just 2.7% in the June quarter of last year when we had only just started to see a couple of underlying cash rate hikes and the market was still fairly profitable. Mm, that is interesting because obviously it, it's almost inverse, isn't it? It's like you've got um, more selling quicker and then obviously a lot, a much greater proportion of those sales are uh, at a loss. And I think that you, uh, you, you know, you, what you're saying there is absolutely correct in that no one's going to want to sell at a loss. No one chooses to sell at a loss. I mean, ultimately, sometimes you suck it up and you, you do sell at a loss for various reasons, but to, to actually willingly line up and, and four time, nearly four times, three to four times more uh, people or as a proportion are now selling at a loss, that is a bit scary, isn't it? So what about the composition of those short-term sales? I mean, does, it, does that follow the long-term pattern? Yeah. So at a high level, there's nothing particularly unique about the short-term resales or those that made a loss. Um, So of the loss-making sales that were held for up to two years, um, the median loss was about 30,000. There was also a strong profit within that as well. So the median gains from those two-year resales was about 75,000, lower than what we've seen in previous reports, but still pretty good. Um, around 66% of the short-term loss-making sales were houses, uh, which is interesting as well. If you break down the um, investor versus owner-occupier, it's actually more owner-occupiers that were incurring a short-term loss. So about 71% of those short-term loss-making resales. 
uh, and 63% of short-term loss-making resales were in capital cities. But again, when you look at sales broadly, um, around two-thirds of them would be in capital cities. Um, many of them are houses and, and most of them, around two-thirds, are owner-occupier sales as well. But what about the normal proportion of loss-making like you've got, I know that there's usually it's more investors lose than owner occupiers. Usually it's more units lose than houses. And um, if my memory serves me correctly, it's usually more in regional areas than in cities. So those three elements are the reverse of what's normally the case, right? Yeah. So apart from the um, loss making sales in the um regions versus capital cities. So usually capital cities have a higher incidence of uh, loss, but you're quite right. Um, the, the typical composition of loss-making sales that we've seen broadly uh, are among investors and around four times as many uh, are, are units in when we look at the overall loss-making sales. So it is a little bit unique in that sense for sure. Mm. Actually, and on that, that would be the reason why the capital cities have an I mean, we've got to sort of separate these two conversations in a way. So that's generally speaking, not looking just at two years uh, or two-year turnarounds versus two-year turnarounds. So in a generally speaking, um, capital cities incur greater losses. Is that because of the high proportion of units in a capital city versus – because when you pull those two numbers out, it's quite distinctly different, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, I would say in recent years in particular, regional resales have been supported by the COVID-related boom and a greater retention broadly of value since the onset of the pandemic as compared to capital cities. It varies a bit when you start to look at, say, uh, resource-related markets, regional areas that are centred around mining activity, uh, tend to have far greater levels of, of loss historically. Um, but certainly at the moment, the portion of loss making across regional Australia, and I would say both across short-term resales and the broader resales profile, um, the rate of loss in regional Australia has been pretty low and, and pretty steady. So it's sitting at about 5.3% for regional Australia. Um, the capital city markets are uh, a little bit higher um, at the moment. So we're seeing the capital city levels um, just, <laughs> sorry, I was just trying to find that data. Um, so the capital cities is uh, sort of sitting closer to about 10% of, of loss making sales in the June quarter. And with these sort of um, the loss making sales, I guess there's a good thing to clarify for our listeners here is that. This isn't including any transaction costs, right? Um, as as Coolidge play with any numbers behind the scenes and just add it, say, ten percent of transaction costs, and how this would really blow out the numbers. Like, and obviously you don't want to because you've got this report and you've consistently done it. Now, if you change the inputs, it's going to basically you know change everything, right? Have you got those numbers and how many people just sell within a, a five or ten percent range above what they paid because? then they feel like they aren't losing money because they've covered their stamp duty back or they've got their selling costs. Is there, Have you done that research at all? No. So to be honest, we've only ever looked at the difference in the nominal sale value. And that's really important to keep in mind here because obviously your transaction costs are really high around property. And that's, I think, what is so surprising about these short-term resales as well and the short-term loss-making resales. It's not just a... Uh, high cost in monetary terms when you consider things like stamp duty, financing, the cost of moving, um, but also time and, and all the kind of life admin that happens with that as well. Uh, so, yeah, you, you'd have to imagine that in real terms um, and taking transaction costs into account that the rate of loss is going to be greater. And, and this is like real money, right? A lot of people think it's not like flipping a coin. If you lose the bet, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, when you do lose money on an investment property and then you add in the transaction costs and then you add in, well, I've had my crack at investment property. It didn't work for me. So I'm not going to invest again. So then there's the opportunity cost of, you know, f not investing in the future. And then there's the opportunity cost of, well, if you did buy a good property versus that property, then you would have held that for 30 years. And 
you know, so I think there's a, it's like the, like you say, it's, this is real money that people are making poor decisions on it. it the costs can really just keep on adding up, I guess, over someone's lifetime. I did some rough numbers on this, even just looking at the um, the two years and saying, well, the on average uh, properties made, the ones that made a gain made a $75,000 gain. And I was trying to work out at what price point or what average price point or median price point did that need to be before they actually made any money taking out the cost of acquisition, the cost of selling and the holding costs in that, in that period of time. And you could almost argue that they broke even. Um and but interestingly enough, though, even with this increase in short-term sales and losses, the overall rate of loss, right, is sitting what eight point, hang on, seven point two percent currently, right? So seven point two percent sold a loss, nominal. Um, the rest all sold a gain. So people go, yeah, you feel good, even if they sell for one thousand dollar more, even though it really costs them more, it comes up as a gain. Um, but the overall rate of loss, even in twenty twenty one, when prices were falling. Um, never actually got over that 10% mark. Whereas back in 2018 and 19, I have been tracking this report for a long time, um, you know, it got up to around 13%. And so, you know, for a while there, a long time, I used to say it was plus or minus 10% of properties in this country sells at a loss. Um, but then that was quite a big difference. And then it's been quite trim or quite tight ever since uh, COVID. So I'm just wondering any, if you have any ideas why. why you know, particularly 21, why didn't it return to 13%? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and historically, the trends in profitability tend to follow capital gains. So nationally, the improvement in profit-making sales over the June quarter coincided with a 2.8% lift in the home value index nationally. And I think that the the rate of loss has just moved structurally lower because of interest rate settings. Yes, we've had a bit of big adjustments, but that's only occurred in the past year, right? And even then, the housing market decline has turned around now. So you've got a very sharp but relatively short downswing that's not reflected in the timing of those resales. And you have a lot of areas that have made massive um, structural improvements. Perth is a really good example where the rate of loss-making sales in the quarter was only sitting at around you know, 12 13% for June. In the June quarter of 2020, loss-making sales across Perth were almost 50%. So I think a big turnaround in some of those resource-related markets, even though their rates of loss are still relatively high compared to other regions in the country. They're very low compared to what, what they've been historically. And some markets, you know, didn't really have much of a downturn amid interest rate rises as well. Perth, Adelaide, their peak to trough declines through interest rate rises were only a couple of percentage points. So that's reflected in that low, steady rate of loss-making sales as well which is pretty wild then when you start to dig into a picture like two-year resales and, and the numbers are, are looking a little worse for that smaller subset of, of sellers. Yeah, I mean, it all comes down to the reason for selling, isn't it? And your confidence. You know, if you're confident about a property and it's worth holding on to it, you're going to do everything you can to hold on to it. If you're lacking confidence, and that could even go to Perth, you know, Perth had come off the back of a decade of losses. So then you got covid get the hell out of here, this is a falling knife. You know, you can sort of understand the rhetoric or what might be going through somebody's mind. But, you uh, know, yeah. particularly with the two years, you know, the, the two-year section, I think that's quite fascinating because there's a re there's an uptick in regions um, in that, in, in terms of the percentage that are selling in a short time. And, and like, get, we all know about the sea change and the tree change that happened in COVID. So I guess what does that tell us about, you know, how permanent that, you know, that structural change is, or there's, there, is there that U-turn coming back to the cities now? And is it showing? I, I think so. I mean, I guess what's important to understand, and this is something you touched on as well, the reason for selling, I want to be very clear that we don't actually know why people are selling. We're just looking at this data and we're making inferences based on the context, the context of rising interest rates the context of changed migration patterns, um, the 
net internal migration to regional Australia, according to provisional data from the ABS, went from this decade average of about 5,500 a quarter to a peak of 12,000 in the March quarter of 2021. Fast forward two years later, that net internal migration figure has come back down to about 5,500. And when we look at short-term resales, we've got this amazing data point of 11%. So more than one in 10 resales that have happened um, are, are happening for properties that were held for only up to two years. That's significant, isn't it? Oh, yeah, especially yeah. when you consider that the long-term average for the regions is only about 7%. Um, by the time this episode comes out, we'll also have released some new data on the listings position. So we're looking at listings that have hit the market through winter where they've only been held for up to three years, and that data is showing 21% of new listings added to the market through uh, winter in the regions have only been held for up to three years. So, yeah, it's it's an extraordinary figure and you'd have to imagine that some of it is related to changes around people's lifestyle and maybe moving back to the capital cities. Again, unfortunately, we can't track the individuals that have gone to the regions and come back. That's not publicly available data that I know of. Um, but I think, again, when you're inferring from the context of this data, that's that's got to be saying something. And these are not all bad outcomes. You know, they're not all selling at a loss. Many, Most of them are, are making nominal gains. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it could be speaking to the the migration trend and a potential reversal of the tree change, sea change that was so popular through the pandemic. So I've certainly heard anecdotally quite a lot of stories that sort of would would you know cause you to have a hypothesis that that would be the case. Uh, I think Chris is about to ask about you know the Richmond Valley there up and Byron. That's that's really been hit quite hard, hasn't it? Yeah, so that's come off a really low rate of loss-making sales from less than 2% uh, at around the height of the COVID boom and, and 2021. Now it's sitting at uh, over 6% of resales and making a loss. So it's not the highest, but it's certainly a massive increase over a very short period of time. To a lesser extent, those same trends are reflected in a lot of the markets that were most popular through COVID, like the Southern Highlands and Shoalhaven as well. Oh, Eliza, there's, um, I mean, I'm just looking at the data here for Sydney, for example, right? Like it's it's pretty crazy when, um, you know, almost 20% of units are selling at a loss. Let's just call it, you know, circa said 80% are actually making gains. This is not a factoring in transaction costs or holding costs and things like that. So when you take all that in, it's got to be much, much lower. Um, we don't know exactly because you haven't done those numbers. But when you look at places like Strathfield and Parramatta and, you know, when it's 30, 40, you know, percent, um, what do you think that really tells us, you know, when, when you've got these areas where they're much higher than other areas and why, what causes that, do you think? That's a great question. Um, from what I can tell in a lot of the analysis around the concentrated areas of loss, uh, I think a lot of it reflects long-term hold periods and they're just areas where prices haven't really budged. So uh, Cumberland was an example of a region we looked at where um, the, the growth in units over a period of around eight years had actually shown a mild decline in, in nominal value. So it's not like this is a sign of any recent forced sales or, or mortgage stress or anything like that. Um, many of these units might have a fair chunk of them actually paid off. I think it's just the fact that there are areas um, even of some of the most blue chip cities where you associate them with strong capital gains, where they do see a lot of supply. I would argue that some areas of Sydney bear a real burden of, of density compared to maybe, you know, um, higher socioeconomic areas. Uh, and that sort of depletes the the uh, level of profitability over time. 
So it's interesting because I look at that and I think um, I, I think back to the mid-teens, uh, you know, around two, two, 2016 for argument's sake, you know, Melbourne unit market was, well, you know, quite well publicised that a high proportion of resales were selling at a, at a loss. Same thing for Brisbane, um, ACT as well. And at the time, you know, reflecting on that, we're like, you know, this has got to start happening in Sydney because at that point we had a lot of cranes in the air building a lot of complexes, uh, but we hadn't had that sort of reflecting in the data. It seemed to be that those cities were ahead of us. And certainly now we are seeing that come to, you know, come to play. Does, do, do you see evidence in the data that, you, that unit loss making sales correlates with increases in large scale development? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, one of the data points we looked at in this uh, analysis was for Melbourne loss-making sales, which for that council area was sitting at around 40%. Um, so obviously, pretty much all of those are units. They are largely confined to the suburbs of Melbourne and South Bank. And the average year built of those is um, 2010 at, at an average. So I guess it does reflect a lot of the development that was happening in the 2010s, given that many of those would have been recently uh, developed units. And Eliza, not just the units, have you seen, uh, is there any areas you can think of just where people have built houses and, you know, the houses have been much more resilient, right? They've gone up and the loss-making sales are a much smaller proportion, but so people may get the belief that, oh, yeah, well, as long as I buy a house, I'm fine. Um, can you sort of highlight any areas where houses have really, you know, underperformed? A lot of people are selling at a loss or is it magnitude much greater? I mean, you look at the uh, the Perth, obviously, that's a story where you can see that, you know, they were hurting, right? 60, 70% of properties were selling as a gain or 30, 40 was selling as a loss, like in the housing market for a good five years there. But is there anywhere else you can think of besides Perth? So I would say Perth off the top of my head as well. Darwin's probably another one where, you know, um, and, and it just comes back to the extended downturns in these properties that we've seen uh, throughout the 2010s. 2014 was sort of where the market peaked for Perth. And again, units across Perth haven't really um, regained value for, for Perth. Houses are actually back at a record high. Um, so the pain in houses, the rates still seem to be highest in those resource-based markets. Um, regional Western Australia, loss-making house sales was sitting at 12.1%. For Darwin, it looks to be the highest at around 22%. And again, regional Northern Territory, 11.3%. But even when you compare those to their unit markets in, in those same regions, um, the loss-making Unit sales across Darwin is sitting at over fifty percent still. Poor old Darwin. I mean, I, I I look at that figure and I think you know the whole of Australia had a bit of a boom in you know twenty twenty one and and even then you know in, in the pain and gain reports in twenty twenty one Darwin was still hurting and people were bailing and less of them were losing money than previously but still in the double digits. Um, and I do love a quote from your report here. Despite the relatively low instance of capital gains across the territory, gross rent yields remain the highest of any other state or territory at six point six percent. I thought, oh, isn't that nice for them? Well, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I wonder if I don't know property investment well enough to to know all of the strategies. But I wonder if there is something about properties that's a, in that's called a loss making strategy <laughs> and and also the yield is a function of property value so uh, is that yield based on the purchase price or based on values in part um perth and darwin do have believe it or not relatively high rental costs and again it comes back to the resources sector you know there are some mining towns where rental properties are going for over a thousand dollars a week just because they are markets where demand is going to be stronger for rental because you don't necessarily want to live there long term. Um, this has a lot of interesting implications around, you know, the the dual nature of the rental market and how people end up struggling who are longer term residents. But it also means that, you know, if you are buying one of these properties cheaply 
with a relatively low level of financing and you're more interested in long-term rental income, then maybe that somewhat offsets the, you know, the, the capital losses. Um, maybe they're not as important. Um, so I guess that's where I was going, talking about the high rent. <laughs> no, uh, you're just reporting on the numbers, you know, like, but I just maybe laugh at a chuckle. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad, I'm glad it made you laugh. <laughs> I mean, you're chasing your, it sounds great, right? Um, but then if you, if you're 40% chance that you're going to lose money, um, if not a lot higher, then it's, uh, might not be worth the bet. I mean, the Gold Coast is quite a high number of sales in the last two years. That was sort of, you know, we've seen a lot of clients move up there, which, you know, coming up, you know, even in the last six months, we've had multiple clients, even clients in Brisbane, moving down to the Gold Coast, um, people leaving Sydney, Melbourne, et cetera. So do you think, did that sort of a surprise that the number of resales, do you think there's a lot of people just buying you know, the lifestyle shift up there or buying investments up there maybe in COVID and maybe going, actually, no, I can't afford my investment property, so I'll sell that and I won't sell my house. Is there any sort of insights you can you can get if it's driven by investors or owner-occupiers or is that data not really interlinked with this? Um, look, I haven't looked at the composition for the Gold Coast in particular. One thing I would say for the Gold Coast is that it is actually often where you'll get the highest volume of loss-making sales, that southeast Queensland. I think because there are just so many properties traded in in southeast Queensland on a regular basis, and no doubt that's been elevated through COVID, the market did also see a strong reaction to rising interest rates, but that's starting to turn around now. And it's one of the regional markets that started to post, well, regional, it's one of the out-of-capital city markets that started to post um, pretty consistent gains um, off off the back of its trough. Um, and from memory, the rate of loss-making sales across the regions is still fairly low. It's interesting, actually, because, you know, as I'm reflecting on the, some of these areas that um, historically have suffered more in the pain and gain report, i.e. had the greatest um, proportions of loss, and, and that loss is dragged down by the unit's you know, as in all the, the, the lost number is, is dragged up, if you want to call it that way. It gets a bit confusing as we're saying the area is dragged down. Um, but, you know, I look at uh, – and when you look at the history of Perth, and we, we talked about, you know, three years ago, Perth loss-making sales, and that was including houses, was um, up 50%. Darwin's always been the, the you know, top of the leaderboard for loss-making sales. Gold Coast has often um, been up there, particularly with on the unit side of things. Um, Sydney – is not doing well at the moment with 9.9% loss-making sales in Sydney, but that's because uh, what if you break down this 2.2 on houses or something and, and the rest double digits on units. And you got to think about who the typical buyers are in these areas. Like, yes, of course, you're going to have some owner-occupiers, but, you know, this is sort of like the, the lag effect of heightened investor activity in a way. I look at Hobart. Hobart is now going through a, a down cycle. And I wonder, it'd be interesting to reflect on that and to say, is in you know, is increased investor activity in a particular location or a particular type of asset, is that harbinger of future losses? I mean, because we know that investors lose more money than owner occupiers. So that's a fact based on on these reports. You know, should we be worried if we are following the herd when it comes to property investment? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's hard to tell until the bubbles burst, you know, um, and I think there are definitely examples of where that has been the case, but it's not always, I think, a, a mm. bad to follow the money. Um, so I think Hobart is actually a really good example. But I know you love it, by the way. I love it, but the numbers also reflect <laughs> it, right? Um, Hobart home values are still over 10% below their recent high. But when you look at longer-term gains over the past decade, it's the best-performing capital city market. It is interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, and, I, and I've read a, a bit about that recently, and I know that we've, that there's been a boom there, but I also, you know, recall times, and I, I, often, I often go back in my mind to when we were filming the show, back in the 2010, 11, 12, 13, and 14. So over those those periods of time, we're traveling around the country. We got to experience areas where it was really difficult to sell. And certainly around that time, you know, the Byron Bay area, difficult to sell. Far North Queensland, difficult to sell. 
Gold Coast, difficult to sell. Perth, difficult to sell. Hobart was difficult to sell. So when I say difficult to sell, it means for us it was easy to buy. Um, those were those were particular markets that that, that stand out quite clearly for me uh, as you know prolonged periods of time where people who want to sell their property are looking at really unfavourable con- conditions. So I and so then when I've seen this data recently that shows how. Hobart's done so well over time, whereas those other areas I mentioned, they haven't performed. Um, you certainly, if you line them all up, it's Hobart have done heaps better than all of them. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower North Shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au I imagine that comes back to different drivers of booms and in some cases busts. So Perth is an obvious one with the volatility in the resources sector. Hobart has been more of, I think, a cultural transformation as well. You know, it's it, it was put on the map in... 2014 when Xi Jinping came out for a visit and um, obviously the investment in the arts and culture that has cemented it as a popular holiday destination for international and domestic tourists alike, that's very different to a resources boom. You also have to consider the elasticity or how easy it is to supply new dwellings um, across Tasmania. High density is not really a thing. Um, and even if it were, they don't have the same level of um, labour um, ease of accessing materials to to just build out the the state in the same way that we've seen across um, parts of southeast Queensland, for example, or in a city Sydney, Melbourne. Uh, so I think that's why the boom across Hobart is different, and why I think the capital gains retention will be lasting even though it's seen a strong adjustment to interest rates, I think there has been a correction with regard to the the fluctuations in interest rates and it was, you know, a bit overvalued. But we're talking about a 10% decline off a high that was preceded by almost a decade of persistent growth. And even when we look at the rate of loss-making sales across Hobart in the June quarter, it's come up to 2.1% of resales you know, off the back of that substantial decline. So even those who have lost value in their home, maybe they're not in a mm, position where they need to sell or are looking to sell. Um, not not that there wouldn't have been people affected by rate rises, but you just tapped into something there. And that that's something that I always think with this, because this, this and Chris mentioned it before, you know, you're talking nominal loss. So the people that sold in the, in the June quarter, 7.2% of them lost money in terms of sold for less than they paid for it. But if you added in the costs, there'd be actually, that would, that would blow out. Be interesting to know, you know, get an, an idea around that. And then, and then you think about if they renovated, that's not included, uh, the holding costs not included, et cetera, et cetera. So you could argue and you could, you know, pin the tail of donkey, you're just guessing, throw a dart, maybe it's 40% really sold at a loss perhaps. Um, and then you think, well, how many more would sell at a loss if they were sold today? You know, so it's quite sobering actually when we look at uh, property as our single biggest asset class in this country and you think actually if you put some numbers around you know, extended, extrapolated what you've come up with this report and, and put some real numbers around, well, actually, how many people really are making money in property? It might be quite sobering for a lot of people who really feel like it's the only thing they want to invest in. Perhaps, but, you know, as you say, the rate of profit-making sales has tended to to shift quite a bit higher. So even if we added in, you know, say it was an extra 10% of loss making sales when you consider the um, additional transaction costs and and money that's been put into property, then 
um, you'd have to imagine that that's still lower now than what we've seen historically. It's interesting. Cobart's um, KPMG uh, brought out some research yesterday. Not that we always trust these forecasts, right? But they were they were very pro Hobart, right? They they think that Hobart's going to be the strongest over the next. Um, They've been listening to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, they were thinking, you know, 14% in 2024 and then 15, another four, uh, 11% in 2024 and 14% in 25, like 25% growth in prices. Uh, you know, do, do you think, what, what do you think is driving that? Do you think it's just the affordability over compared to the capital cities plus low listings and, you know, what we're discussing? Or do you think there's something something bigger at play? Um, That's a good question. I mean, it is still relatively lower median than um, you, the the sort of eastern seaboard. So that could be a factor. Maybe it's population projections as well. Um, I haven't actually looked at that research, so I wonder if they have something um, explicitly that they've mentioned uh, assumptions that are underpinning that. Do you know what went through my mind when I saw that? I haven't read the report yet, but I did see the, the press releases and I thought, excellent. We haven't actually had them stick their neck above the parapet before so that we could Look at them for the fuller forecaster report. So KPMG will be <laughs> tracking you. No, oh, no, we'll be adding you into. That's my second favorite report, which is the one that Chris and I author, which is the fuller forecaster report. <laughs> but back to the pain and gain, though. I mean, let's just quickly sort of look at what the numbers tell us about loss making sales in general. And I'm talking regional versus city, units versus houses, investors versus owner occupiers, the time to make a profit. So these are these are all sort of quite important um, distinctions, I guess, and we can make comparisons here. And and I know that we're talking about the two the two year turnaround, and that's obviously that skews things a little bit, but. I think there are some really interesting um, trends over time, and and I'd be interesting to know what you what you see there, but also whether you do see any any material changes or any trends uh, that might be changing any of these. Um, so again, I think that the regional um, has sort of shifted structurally lower in terms of the rate of loss making sales. So if you look at a um, sort of broader series average, the rate of loss-making sales has been about 12%. That's shifted to um, 5.4% uh, in the latest quarter. In terms of, um, uh, and sorry, for the capital cities, that was an 8.2% um, rate of loss for for the June quarter. Um, but just look at houses, because I think it's important Particularly when you're looking at the regional versus city story, we have to sort of look at housing because there's so there's a lot less apartments in regional yeah. Australia. Yeah. So in regional Australia, um, loss making house sales were four point eight percent, and that's compared to seven point seven percent in the unit sector. When you look at the capital cities, the rate of loss making house sales was just two point five percent compared to 16.4% in the capitals. So you're quite right in that that's a major um, factor, I guess, which keeps the loss-making sales in capital cities quite elevated. It's um, pretty compositional. Eliza, at the back end, in the back end of uh, CoreLogic, um, I always like to ask you what you're working on. And so, you know, you mentioned there a little bit about what you're working on with listings, et cetera. What's the general consensus at CoreLogic with you know, where we are through the cycle and, you know, listing numbers holding up through spring and, you know, because you, you do get some insights and data that we don't get and you can form a view on that. What's your sort of view on what's going to happen over the next few months in terms of um, sales, auctions, etc.? Uh, so my view is that we're in a kind of tentative upswing. So we've had um, six consecutive months of capital growth but the rate of capital growth slowed from May. It, it hit a um, cyclical peak, if you like, of, of monthly growth at 1.2%. And then I think when we had the June rate rise decision, that kind of knocked some momentum out of the market. Um, it was pretty telling. I don't know if you um, saw the June consumer sentiment uh, index report um, that had the survey sort of straddling the point of the rate decision. Uh, and that showed the consumer sentiment index going from around 89 pre-rate decision to about 73. So 
Month-on-month, consumer sentiment was pretty stable between May and June, but that showed some wild fluctuations around the rate decision. And I think in this cycle in particular, people have been very sensitive to news around what the RBA is doing. So even though we're in a position now where it seems the cash rate is likely to remain steady, you've you've still got issues of, I guess, credit availability. Um, the June quarter data from APRA showed a uh, average serviceability assessment rate of 8.8%. So that's kind of keeping a lid on, I think, what would otherwise be a pretty strong upswing given the mismatch between supply and demand. New listings um, came up through winter, which was pretty unusual, uh, but new listings were still um, slightly outpaced by the sales volume in the same period. So um, your supply and demand suggests that we're in a seller's market, but the actual seller indicators, um, like the clearance rate, the the rate of capital growth, um, those things I think remain a little bit subdued. Uh, and and I think, you know, we, we've got some headwinds now around the fact that the labor market is going to start to loosen up. That could impact serviceability, lead to more supply coming on the market. So there is definitely, uh, I guess, a more pessimistic scenario that could play out towards the end of the year as we get through this position where we're feeling the impact of high interest rates. Um, whereas I think earlier in the rate hiking cycle, we were, we were feeling the impact of that from a credit availability perspective, but not from economic perspective. And I think it's not the whole market's growing at the same rate, like which is what we always talk about this podcast, but it was the upper 25% of the markets, really the one that's bounced back the strongest up. Um, I mean, that's had the lowest number of sales probably as well, because it's been really dry. Um, I mean, talking to clients, there's, they're getting seeing a mixed bag. They're seeing properties that are on the market for, for weeks and weeks and weeks that aren't selling. Um, you know, they're, they're massive compromises, but then they're seeing property sell within 24 hours, right? Like we've had multiple clients buy within 24 hours in the last few weeks. Um, have you got any way to gauge just how much intergenerational wealth, um, is coming down the system? Like any way that CoreLogic can measure how much like the LVR loans and how much money is flowing down? Because for me, I think that's, what's really supporting prices. One of the most, I think it's, it's the the baby boomer, the, they're getting close to their later years. Their, their house price has gone up a lot in recent years. They don't need to give it to the kids because the kids you know, are in their 50s, 60s. They're, they're doing quite well financially, but then they're passing it straight down to the grandkids. Like with the deposits we're getting with clients is you know, unheard of. And we're saying, look, the only way you can buy is raising another 500 grand. And then they're going to the parents um, and getting it. Um, and so is there any way, because I, I just think that that's really happening and if you think about the property market, it's ten trillion with two point two trillion dollars of debt. Well, that's eight trillion dollars of houses that you know uh, that you know people can get access to that equity, or they can sell down their money in super. So, I was just curious if you've started to see any way to measure that because I think it's happening on mass um, because parents of kids are having to ask. Yes, I, so I think that tracks, and I guess the way that I'd think about it would be in the discrepancy between what we're seeing in housing finance data and housing data. So um, prices are continuing to rise, but recent months of housing finance data have pointed to a decline in the number and the value of money that's being taken out for for um, property purchases. So, you know, I, I was on a um, panel with the CEO of AB Jennings the other day, and he is, you know, he would have much more exposure to the profile of the buyer than, than what I would. And he kind of corroborated that. He was like, the buyers I'm seeing at the moment are either downsizers or they're people who have just gotten a lot of help from mum and dad. You know, their parents have downsized and they've gifted to the kids to, you know, buy their their new home. So I think that makes sense. It's also corroborated by the APRA data, which shows extremely low levels of high LVR mortgages going out um, for both owner-occupiers and investors. And um in the data and also anecdotally, we're seeing that a lot of East Coast investors are now looking to Perth as well um, because it is a relatively low price point where they wouldn't have to be av- as leveraged to buy into a market that is currently performing well in capital growth terms and offers a relatively high rent yield. 
Yeah, I think that's definitely one to catch. So you're saying the total mortgages or the total debt taken out and then the total number of sales. Then you could figure out how much is that capital. Because um, you're right, a lot of it could be cash money. It could be cash money where downsizing or coming back from overseas. We're seeing a bit of that. But a, a lot of that could just be, you know, future inheritances passed down early. And, um, you know, I think that the, the target on super, you know, the super industry is you know, three trillion, but a lot of that wealth's held by the top 10 or 20%, right? And, you know, there, there's caps of 3 million potentially coming in and, you know, there's a real attack on that. So maybe we should start passing it down to get it out of super. I think that might be starting to flow down as well. It's 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 kind of astonished me how much deposits we're seeing. Obviously, this just amplifies inequality, right? Because, you know, not everyone's got access to that. Then the people who use it, and it's also the higher incomes are dominating the market as well. I would say that the buyers that are acting are, are usually on the higher incomes because they've still got enough capacity to buy. Yes. Because um, if you're on a very low income right now or a medium income, you just haven't got enough capacity. You're borrowing at four times your income. Like you just cannot get into the market. So even if you wanted to buy, you just can't borrow enough from the banks. I think there's a double, you know, uh, issue here with. So do you think that there's ultimately going to be a pressure on the banks to try to increase borrowing capacities because inequality is just, and rental crisis is kicking off? I mean, the inequality piece has been going on for decades. If you if you look at data on rates of home ownership, the the rate of home ownership has fallen. No matter what age group you're looking at, it's fallen most across the lowest income um, quintile. So I think you aren't going to see as much pressure on the banks or indirectly. I think it's more you see pressure on the government. Um, and the good news is, I think we have a government that recognises that structural inequality within the housing market. And that's why they're looking at home equity schemes that have, you know, relatively low income caps or the, um, <laughs> you know, like family- <laughs> They were home- higher than I expected, I can tell you. <laughs> sure, but not as high as what was introduced with the first home loan deposit scheme and, and you know, the extension of the- um, low deposit schemes, um, the the family home guarantee, the regional home guarantee, the first home guarantee, you know, all of those policies are targeting that exact issue. It's saying your deposit hurdle is probably the problem, so we're going to intervene to help with that. Obviously, the issue with a loan deposit scheme in, in their early iterations in 2020 was that it then meant that the buyer would ultimately owe more interest because they would have a low deposit home loan. And as you say, Chris, serviceability assessment becomes more of an issue then as well. So the benefit of something like a home equity scheme is that with the government going in, then you actually have to take out less debt and and need less of a deposit there as well. Eliza, I think I have some interesting research from Jardin yesterday was shared with me and um, you know, the cost to build in New South Wales has pretty much gone up 45%, right? Um, and, you know, so at current prices, developers can't basically make a profit. You know, the cost to build is higher than what they could sell them for. And the only way they could, so prices have to go up for them to be able to build. It, what's your sort of, you know, and, and, also, and approvals and constructions are, are pretty dire, right? You know, it's, and so we've got this housing crisis, we've got this rental crisis. Yeah, we could stimulate demand, but it, you know, do you, do you think that that's still not going to be enough for developers to be able to build at a profit? And do you think this is going to become a real issue where, you know, even though they do rezoning or they 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 make incentives for people to buy, developers still will say, "Well, I'm not building because I can't make a profit." Do you think this is going to be a real issue? Oh, absolutely. The private sector conditions for property development are not ideal at all, uh, and it's obviously it's interesting in the context of the 1.2 million. Um, new homes target, where if you look at a historic five-year um, rolling completion level, the highest we ever got was about a million and eighty-nine thousand in the five years to twenty nineteen, where obviously your interest rates were moving structurally lower, but there was an investment and off-the-plan apartment boom. So a very different time now, as you say, construction costs have risen but interest rates are also higher. So you have these high-density development projects that aren't getting the the, the um, pre-commitments for um, financing. So 
that's a major issue as well, and it and it's led to new approvals trending about thirteen percent below the decade average. So even if you have capacity freed up, and I think capacity in the building sector will be freed up in twenty twenty four because you'll have a looser labor market. So a lot of what the builders are talking about at the moment is that materials costs are gradually easing, albeit from high levels, but it's the labor that's the constraint at the moment. So if your interest rates are high, your labor market loosens through 2024, then you'll have um, a period where it starts to become easier to to develop new projects. But by that time, um, a lot of those projects aren't development ready because the the approvals have been trending lower, you know, which will further free up capacity. So it, it is cyclical. But I think the point there is that there are a lot of factors outside of, uh, you know, a, a target or even fluctuations in materials costs that can influence the amount of property we're developing. That's why I'm a big believer personally in a kind of strong counter-cyclical supply of property that is, you know, um, social housing essentially, or maybe the government contracting to to get those properties built, albeit that it'll be happening at a larger costs. Um, but when you consider the counterfactuals or you consider, um, I guess, the economic savings that you get from housing people as well, <laughs> that then that can be really worthwhile. I think that's why Dan Andrews was at uh, Assembly, right? They, you know, when he did his budget, he was, you know, pre-approvals to Build a grady flight, no DA, you know, you can just do that. You know, we're going to be knocking down, you know, social housing to build more social housing. And we're going to be doing it with a big developer like Assembly that gets money from super funds, et cetera. So I think it was, it was trying to encourage that the government's doing what they can do. Um, but it's really hard for the private sector. I mean, I was, I was interesting in that report as well that showed the builders, so you've been a couple of times in history where they've actually reduced prices, you know, like. You know, they haven't fluctuated. It's been very little price growth in, in in building over time and enormous in the last couple of years, but they haven't like increased their prices 10% this year, then reduced it 10%. They're going to try to hold their prices, I imagine. And um, because they've also got to recoup the the losses they made in the last couple of years, if they're on fixed price contracts and a couple of wrong developments went wrong, their kitty, their emergency funds are really quite small. So yeah, I think it's the, the developing industry's it's tough for them right now to, to you know, they want to probably build, but they just can't probably sell them because the cost of build is just way more expensive than what buyers can afford. Like first-time buyers are out. Um, it's only really that upper end where they can make profitable sales. And then back to the pain and gain report, then you see the sheer high volume of people that actually lose money when they do buy these properties anyway. So it's... You know, I think Evan Thornley talks about the whole system's broken. I think that's a classic example of of seeing it in action. Now it's broken. That you, you've got a problem now with low approvals, low commencements. You know, constraints of capacity to build, and then in, and upward pressure on costs. And you've got lots and lots of people who've actually bought into these developments over the years, and they've lost money anyway. So if, if you know, once bitten, twice shy. With with some of them, no doubt. But it does come back to the, you know, the government's at least starting to take seriously. We had an interview recently with Michelle Adair, from, you know, community housing provider, you know, and about our government starting to take seriously, finally, after decades, uh, the government's role in providing housing for parts of our society. And um, so it shall be interesting to see all that unfold. And I think, too, also this concept, I think you said it, Eliza, about um, getting used to long-term renting in this country. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Home ownership or levels of home ownership do fall. That is something that we do need to get used to and we need to do a better job of it. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see the conversation evolve around build to rent over the past few years as well. That was a nothing conversation, at least from my perspective. I know there are people in this country who've been working on that for a really long time, but it was a pretty nothing argument in in the 2010s. And now, you know, we're seeing more and more tax breaks and incentives proposed for that sector, which is a reflection of, you know, the institutional investment, longer term renting as well. Historically, it's um, something that's targeted at a higher income cohort and it still doesn't solve the problem of what you do when you get to retirement and you're still renting and your income is much lower. Uh, but I like the idea of longer term leases, 
better facilities, um, more security for renters. Um, and if built to rent is a part of that, then that's great. It is interesting, though, you know, that is a, it's a private enterprise. It's targeted at a higher price point, so it's not going to solve our social housing no. uh, problem or low-income housing problem, but still needs subsidies in order to get off the ground. Mm. So what does it really well, say about yeah. our property I market? Mean, it comes back to the structure of Australian taxation as well, right? It's, um, you know, land tax thresholds, for example, are easily passed by um, owner-renters, um, the GST, um, structure as well. So, you know, if you can build a tax system that incentivizes one form of investment, I don't really see the harm in altering a tax structure to to change the way we do things in the housing segment. Well, it requires a holistic view, and that's what it hasn't had. And um, and in fact, even in recent, uh, it were at the PIPA conference last week at the Property Investor um, Professionals Association conference. It was just interesting about various conversations around this, but, you know, really what's needed, you know, yes, systemic change and understanding the structures and what's in place and what's been the impediment to to, to provision of housing and why we've got to this state, but we need some short-term solutions. Um, I did come up with one myself. I know that, Chris, you've often mentioned, I can't remember who it was that came up with the idea of giving a tax break to people to for those of us who want to rent out a room in our homes without having an impact on capital gains tax and having to pay um, tax on the income, so just to just to get some more rooms into the system, I thought about one about, uh, on the back of our conversation about Airbnb a couple of episodes ago um, that why not incentivize people to take their properties out of the Airbnb or the short term, um, put them into to long-term market for a period of time, and then once that period of time expires to give us a bit of a break, then they get 365 days a year to put on the short-term rental market. They're not limited by the 180 days. So there is lots of creative ways that can be looked at um, to actually ease the situation right now, but it doesn't seem to be that anybody has a real will and I think, I mean, I, my only other thing with that would be the government probably just needs to, you know, work with the developers, right? They need the construction industry. And I think they could absolutely reduce so many taxes within the development game um, that would reduce the cost of apartments, reduce well, the cost of build. That's 40% tax, right? Yeah. And I think that's if they, they just basically said, right, we're just going to, you know, next three years, we're going to give you guys a real big uh, break on taxes. We're going to give you heaps of, um, and then just encourage As the long as you pass the cost savings on plus on exactly <laughs> um and you know that that i think you know would potentially get that mismatch where you know the first time buyers can get into these and then obviously increase the building quality so we don't have as many issues like we did but i think that's the government doesn't want to say no to taxes uh, unfortunately um when they're in so much debt it's such a hard political thing to say well we're going to have a lot more uh, a lot less revenue over the next few years we've got bigger you know deficits but it's going to be great for our society I, I just don't know if that flies swings and roundabouts how you spend the money isn't it really yeah. you spend it before you get it the productivity commission put out a really interesting report um i think it was august last year and it pointed out that there's some obvious savings when it comes to the efficiency of housing related policy and payments as well so Commonwealth rental assistance is considered pretty inefficient because there are a lot of people receiving it who probably don't need it. It's it's just because historically it's been tied to other government benefits that people are automatically eligible for Commonwealth rental assistance. So you could redirect some of the revenue to target that in a better way. There's also, you know, the same report talks about the inefficiency of a lot of first-term buyer grants, which we know just inflate property prices. So redirecting some of that revenue potentially, but I guess it gets complicated as to the level of government that it's distributed as well. Yes. Now, Eliza, have you got a property done by for us for this episode? Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about my own property journey and um, the dumb things I've done along the way. So I want to talk about painting um, because everyone assured me that a fresh coat, coat of paint would make um, our new home look beautiful and transformed, um, and it has in many ways. But I, from my personal experience, I'm not sponsored by any companies or anything like that, but I do want to advise just getting someone to do it if you're time poor or, like me, you're just not very good at painting. Um, because I know it can cost a lot of money, but I guarantee they've done a much better job. Uh, 
Uh, <laughs> so our paint job's really bad. And honestly, the time that I put into it, the money I spent on rollers and all the equipment and tape and, you know, the clothes I've ruined, I would just say, you know, if you're not False very- economy. If, if you're a researcher like me and you're not very handy, I'd recommend maybe just paying someone to do it. Yeah, there's a bit of grunt in painting, isn't there? It's, um, it took the so long and- too. It took us like, oh, whereas some of the professional painters, they get in there, they're done in a couple of hours. I just, you guys may disagree, but from my experience, if I could go back, that's what I would have done. It's like that classic saying, isn't it? Are you paying for someone's time or you're paying for all the time that they've invested um, in being an expert and being able to do it in no time, right? Like, um, and I think that's with painters when we painted our old house. Like, they were just unbelievable, just, you know, it's just the using of the brushes and they're just going to this trance. It's um, artful, they, yes. Yeah. It's beautiful to watch. They should be taping this up, but they're able to do a line next to a window and, you know, just so delicately and not get a single drop anywhere. It's um, it's unbelievable, the skill set. Yeah, and I should say I'm very privileged <laughs> to be able to say that, like, ooh, hire some painters. But, um, yeah, if you can uh, afford it and you're time poor and you're not very handy, then I say yeah. go for it. Go for the paint. Thanks, Eliza. Always good to chat. I'm sure we'll chat again soon. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Appreciate the insights. Love that report. You know that. Until next time. Thanks, Eliza. Thank you. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.